Welcome back to the program. It's easy to forget that long before the intelligence failures of 9-11, the misinformation about WMDs in Iraq and what has become the militarization of the CIA, that since the end of the Second World War, the CIA, America's principal intelligence agency, has done well as the bulwark of American intelligence efforts in the Cold War and in helping secure America's place in the world. Perhaps there is no better way to look back at that effort than through the lens of the CIA's most zealot-like character, Jack Devine. Devine has served 11 directors of the CIA. He was there when Allende fell in Chile in the effort to aid the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, in the morass of Iran-Contra, in the hunt for Pablo Escobar, and during the Haitian coup in 1991. He ultimately served to oversee the Directorate of Operations, the nerve center of America's covert operations worldwide, and he's the author of the new book, Good Hunting. Jack Devine is a 32-year veteran of the CIA. He's a founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jack Devine to the program to talk about Good Hunting. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. How did you get involved in the agency originally? There's some things in life are serendipitous. <laughs> I was teaching high school in suburban Philadelphia. My wife gave me as a, a birthday present a book that was a, scan, a scandalous book about CIA called The Invisible Government. I read it and had the opposite reaction. I thought, wow, what an interesting place to work. So when we used to write with ink and pen, I uh, sent off a letter, and a year later I was... Uh, and going through paramilitary training. What was it about the CIA in general, about reading David Wise's book? What was it that captured your attention? I think it's the same thing that captures uh, young people today that uh, put their sights on uh, the agency, and that is a sense of mission. And uh, it, I don't think it's uh, corny or hoagie to say it, but you know, a fair number of our, our young people like would like to be thrown into the fray to uh, defend their country and the values of, uh, of liberty and democracy. And during my time was the Cold War, which was very, very real. And today, I think we're looking at a highly unstable, uh, terrorism-ridden world on which our interests, again, are, and our well-being is put at uh, great risk. So... It's that sense of mission that I think draws people, and it's certainly not the salary. And uh, those that are looking for just adventure are going to find it's a lot more work than just seeing the world. And over the 32 years that you were part of the agency, talk about the ways in which that mission changed and way in ways in which the mission shifted. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that people um, sort of don't get right about the CIA is the fact that, uh, the CIA executes uh, policy. In other words, the President of the United States, and this is the rightful place, uh, decides uh, how the CIA should, should be used. And he's subject to the popular opinion and the constituents that they don't like what he's doing, out he goes. So the changes are often influenced by the policies that come and go with different uh, different presidents. So you know, we had a long string of presidents and bipartisan uh, efforts in the Cold War. And I think in the 90s, because the, Cold, the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a period where Republicans, Democrats, even many of us in CIA were questioning, well, what's the future of, of intelligence? 
and then terrorism came back as an issue, and uh, and CIA was redirected to that mission. So the changes, uh, not to put too fine, but really are policy driven, and it's CIA's job to respond. So I think that hasn't changed. Just what we're responding to as. One of the things that we heard so much about in the post-9-11 period is the fall-off in human intelligence that the CIA was engaged in. Certainly there's a lot of electronic intelligence, and now we have drones, and so many, so much technology. The traditional human intelligence seems to have slipped away to a certain extent. Yeah, I've heard this criticism. It's uh, one that's not only, it's not just contemporary, it's uh... Uh, as technology began to revolutionize intelligence, that that, that point has been made over and over. Um, I think the bigger factor in it is we have been at war for you know a decade. When you're at war, it's all-consuming, and your intelligence then has to be focused on military-related activities. This, more than anything else, I think, sucks away from the types of, of strategic human sources that we need, and more to tactical. In other words, who's on the other side of the hill? Greater reliance on supporting technology and supporting a tactical attack by our military. So I think that more than even the revolution of technology, I think we're our best when we marry the two. I'm a big advocate of of marrying human and technology, so I don't think it's what's undermined it as much as it's sort of uh, been this, uh, this focus. And just let me finish off on this one point, which is, you know, the drones have revolutionized intelligence, also revolutionized warfare. So I'm a proponent of it. That doesn't mean in any way that I don't think we should be investing heavily into a human, and particularly the covert action field. One of the things that technology has also done, and it's the part of this discussion that perhaps doesn't get talked about enough, is it has made secrecy so much more difficult. Well, I think that's absolutely, absolutely uh, true. And the, the flip side of it, there's so much information now that everybody is an instant analyst. Uh, you used to be able to control the flow of, of information and ideas in a way that you know had some order to it, I guess. Um, but today, everyone has so much information. You have instantaneous uh, uh, commentary on it. And uh, you don't have much of an opportunity to let facts percolate to the top. So, uh, and because everyone has information now, there's a temptation uh, to release even the secret stuff. And I think that's been, uh, you know, we've seen that with Snowden. We've seen it with uh, Corporal Manning, with uh, his his uh, WikiLeaks. And um, it's it's very hard to do intelligence, I can tell you that as a practitioner, uh, trying to avoid uh, seeing your material in the, in the media. Given that, do we need to look at new ways to do intelligence, even human intelligence today? Well, I think one of the things, the last, I thought, was a statistic that 3 million people had security clearance, and I'd like to know what they're all doing, <laughs> you know, maybe the size of, of it, and maybe the way we go about classifying. So it's easier to control smaller amounts of, uh, of information, so maybe we should be even um, even more uh, more selective about it. The big problem in compartmenting nowadays, as we see with Snowden, is, um, 
in the old days, you'd have a black list. You would write down everybody that knew uh, a particular secret. So you'd have everybody on a sheet of paper. You'd have 25 names. Well, today, the way information proliferates through the uh, connectivity of all the computer information, you can barely keep track of the thousands of people that know uh, small bits of information. So um, I think it isn't so much how you how you change human is how do you go back to the need to know principle? It's an old, you know, centuries old view of how you handle intelligence. How do you compartment it in a way in which you lock down the computers? And we've spent a lot of money with computer experts telling it was locked down. So I hope we don't rehire the same ones to fix the problem. You've served with 11 CIA directors. Talk about the ways in which the directors of Central Intelligence have played a role in shaping or reshaping the culture of the agency? Well, that's the, uh, the agency, first of all, is a very resilient organization. So, And then there's really a very small number of political figures that come in at the top in any change. Um, and there's a yin and yang between the director and the, the workforce. And uh, there has to be a little uh, give and take. I remember when... Uh, but it gets into little things. When uh, Jimmy Carter was president, everyone started wearing a sweater. Then when uh, Reagan came in, it was, uh, you know, back to shirts and ties. So there's a desire to accommodate directors. But if you take Jim Woolsey, which I mentioned in the book, and my intention isn't to go through each of them, he brought the drone program into the CIA. The CIA didn't want it. The military didn't want it. They wanted to keep flying pilots. But single-handedly, he drove by taking a small amount of money within the budget and coming up with the drone. So there are occasions where directors have direct impact on the intelligence uh, platforms, but um, and I don't mean it as harsh as it sounds. Directors come and go, mm -hmm. but the, the, the mandate sort of um, stays, and uh, it's really the, it's a question of how comfortable the relationship is, not that directors come in and overwhelmingly change the the culture. Talk about that in, in a larger sense, beyond even the mandate, the, the culture of the organization. For a long time, the CIA really reflected the culture of, it, of its beginnings in the, the post-war period and then into the Cold War, and sort of the ethos and, and sense of people like Wild Bill Donovan very much permeated the agency. To what extent has that changed over time? Well, one of the great things from an architectural point of view is when you go into CIA, it's a truly a public built that's impressive. They got that right, too. But on the left side, as soon as you go in, there's a quote from the Bible that says, you shall know the truth, and it will set you free. That's what they set down as the primary mission of CIA when it was founded. That has to stay. In other words, what's the purpose of this building? It's to get the best information it can deliver it coldly, objectively, with no spin on it for any broker reason. That's, you know, that's that's the mandate. So even the uh, World War II uh, swashbuckling uh, Donovan and so and so on. The mission was always clear, uh, and you know, avoiding politicization is uh, is key. There's the covert action part, which is controversial. Which is in addition to collecting information, how do you change? Uh, change events. I think the difference, uh, if I could just go to your cultural question, 
I think there's a tradition to try and stay as energetic as is uh, an imaginative creative as the Donovan World War II uh, uh, players were, but also to become more and more professional about the collection of information and getting it just right. Hasn't always worked, but that is the mission. Talk a little bit about covert actions, and certainly something you've seen a lot of during your tenure at at the CIA, and the extent to which it has been more or less successful or unsuccessful over time. Now, this is a great point, and one of the things as I'm, I'm rolling out the book, I begin to realize that it's not a simple concept. Most people, an average person, confuses covert with clandestine spying. They're two separate functions. The spy, uh, John Le Carre, Smiley, collecting information, betrayal, all of that is what's in the public mind. But in the 1947 charter that set up the United States, it has a small phrase, carry out those special activities as directed by the president. That's the only place where covert action is specifically cited, and it's only in the CIA charter. And that is, do what the president tells you to try and make things happen. And that's a different charter. That's the James Bond uh, role. And uh, when you try and make things happen, it's very controversial. And this is why I said earlier on, Jeff, that um, the president sets the policy, and that's the important thing. But if you look at Afghanistan, from my perspective, uh, it was a great program. Why? You had bipartisan support. You had a, a group on the ground that wanted to fight and believed in its mission. The CIA put its best desk experts on it, funded it robustly, and uh, the American people were behind it. The Chile experience, which not I mean, I percent of our listeners are go back to that time, but you know there was a, a directive from the White House to get rid of Allende, have a coup. It was a bad idea because, A, the ingredients weren't in place. You didn't have bipartisan. You have, didn't have the things that I talked about. And the, the office there said, don't do it, and the White House insisted. That was bad covert action. So you can find that through our history, but usually it's because of a policy policy call. What about Vietnam, and what impact did all of that have on the agency? Well, I think it had a, a huge impact on on our on America. I think it had a tremendous impact on the military and how it views things. And I think in in, uh, in CIA, the impact again is when you have a protracted uh, war. So much emphasis was put into the um, paramilitary aspects of Vietnam that it took a while to unwind it and get back into. Uh, more collection about what the Soviet Union and China was up to. So uh, it, it ate up a lot of people, and, uh, and at the end of the day, um, you know, we all know what the outcome was. One of the things you've touched on a couple of times is the complexity, and perhaps it's even more complex today, in the relationship between the CIA and the military. Talk a little about that, Jack. Well, I think, first of all, we also be... Uh, proud that we have the best fighting force, military force in the world. I mean, Putin knows that. Everybody knows it, even though I know there's commentary about our image around the world. Nobody disputes that. So let me just say, a friend, that our military is an incredible force. CIA has always had a what I call a paramilitary force. In other words, you've had, uh, you take off the uniform, but you carry out military 
like activities, and that was usually funded by you know be, be funded, but the the young legs would be detailed to the CIA and they'd work undercover, you know, carrying out some deep mission somewhere. And then when the mission was done, they'd go back to the military. So I think we've always had a a really good relationship. Uh, special forces actually come out of out of uh, OSS. The problem becomes more on the collection. You know, the military, when you go to war, they have a tremendous need for tactical information. You know, the bridge, the, the, the group that's over the hill. CIA's real strength is in the longer strategy. What, what's Putin's, what are Putin's plans? You know, the intentions. Are they going to put troops here? In other words, there, there is some tension during war period about uh, the cooperation. I think in modern times, right now in Iraq and Afghanistan, my contacts, have been, uh, you know, pretty enthused about the relationship, and they've gotten uh, much closer. Um, and I would say one of my concerns is that maybe we're spending too much time, that's the CIA, on the uh, tactical intelligence, military tactical intelligence, and that should be left to the military. And, of course, the CIA is now part of a much larger intelligence framework for the country and more and more layers of bureaucracy, both below and above. How do you think that's affected the agency? Well, as I mentioned, I think Central's key. I think we have a bloated you know, intelligence community. We've got a lot of people playing into it, more because they can, because of computers. You can now be, uh, collect 80%. Everyone can have 80% just by sitting in front of a computer. Um, I I guess my my big big concerns uh, uh, about the, the culture of the agency is that it can you know will it will it you know will it adapt to this environment and in essence I would say we really need to trim it back. I mean the, the problem with it is when you trim it, the often the, the, you'll get a directive from the White House saying cut everything twenty percent and that's a bad plan because you want to keep 89% of a good program and 67% of another program. So my point is, as they talk about you know, rolling back when that time comes, it has to be much more selective. And I would, you know, I, I just think we have too many agencies collecting, too many people repeating the same information, uh, way too many analysts. Uh, but it, in the reduction, we have to do it smartly. And I think we need to centralize it, tighten it, Cut out the bureaucracy, as you said, Jeff. I think there's just way too much redundancy in the system. And do you think that it's hurting the collection of information? That it's hurting the intelligence effort? You know, I think you, you know. Honestly, I think you do better when you're 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 lean and mean. Uh, a lot of my colleagues would say, you know, you know, we don't want to advocate for cutting, but you're better when you're. You're more creative. You're you've got more uh, imagination. I think when you have uh, limited budgets. When you have open-ended budgets, I think, um, you know, I don't want to say complacency. That's not the right word. But I just think you're sharper, better focused, being lean. And I, I don't think we're lean today. One of the other aspects, and you talk about this with respect to Aldra James and, and a couple of other areas, that seems harder to address in the context of such a bureaucratic institution is the importance of individuals relying on their instincts. Talk a little about that, Jack. 
Well, it is a human business, and it's a, you know, we, there's an art to recruiting people. There's a, an art to uh, to uh, managing them, I guess. But when you when you go mole hunting, uh, there are two things. When I talk about instinct, I think one of the places in the book I talk about is surveillance uh, and kidnapping. And sometimes your inner ear tells you something's wrong in the environment, and you have to respond to it. So you can feel surveillance. When you get around to sizing up individuals and whether they can be a traitor or not, I mean, it's really hard to sit down across from somebody and say, that person's a traitor. The better the traitor is, the less likely you're, the, you're, you're likely to see it. The truth of the matter is we usually get our breakthrough by having a source inside the enemy. And that's where I would put most of my emphasis is penetrating those groups that run agents against us. So the inner instinct to me is when you're in a war zone, when you're in a surveillance exercise, but when you get in close and dirty on uh, mole hunting, uh, that's very careful research, and you, you have to be careful that your instincts don't take you in the wrong place. But above all, you need a source in the other guy's camp. Talk a little bit about your family and how it how you were able to reconcile and keep your family together at the same time that you did work within the agency, as we've talked about. It's an intriguing question for sure, and you don't see this in the movies or, or in, uh, on television. But you know, at the end of the day, spies. You know, James Bond doesn't have a family, but most of the people I know in the CIA do. They have children and wives. And it's really hard. You come home at night and your wife says to you, well, how did you do today? I say, well, fine. <laughs> or it wasn't so good today. And that's the end of the discussion. You can't go any further. So, you know, all of us like to have the closer our relationship. You want to share that. With your children, you keep them in the dark. And I talk about this in the book. You keep them in the dark until they're early teens. And I made a mistake once by waiting until the late teens. And that turned into a, uh, a momentary uh, uh uh, what would I call it, disruption that I had in the rest of my car trip unwinding. So uh, you do lead a double, double life. They see you living in a community and friends and, and so on, and then at a certain point in life, you say, listen, you know, actually all those people I was meeting, but they were they were targets. They weren't just friends. These were people that I was working with or trying to get to work with. So, you know, how do you handle that? But if, I think uh, if you have a good relationship with your children and your you know, when you do communicate with them, you communicate clearly with them, uh, it's good. I think it tends to the greater problem are in the personal relationships between husband and wife. And I have a big family, and maybe the fact that just managing it kept my wife so involved that she didn't feel she needed to know everything I did. <laughs> and then I was able to, she was involved in a few key operations, which I think gave her a good feel for it. And then oh, a very humble way, I would tell you, when I first started trying to recruit people, I was more of a wallflower, and I needed my wife out there to take me by the hand and move me around a cocktail circuit. I got better at it. The rest of sure your taxpayers' money <laughs> was put to good use. But families can play can play a key role, and they have to protect you. So I think, you know, loose lips sink ships. So you know, families uh, are, are vitally important. You mentioned in the course of our conversation Le Carre and James Bond. To what extent has the public perception of espionage as a result of some of these images and some of these stories in the past, to what extent 
does that impact even those within the agency? Well, you know, when I was growing up in the agency, I took umbrage at the fact that, you know, these are the movies. I just didn't, you know, it just seemed it wasn't professional enough. But as the years got, went by, I thought, wait a minute, who doesn't want to look like James Bond and doesn't <laughs> want to have some of the pizzazz? And then I began to realize that the foreigners around the world have a very you know, high opinion of the CIA, partly because of this. It's an impotent, uh, not an impotent, sorry, uh, all-powerful. So the... Uh, it, there's there's a there's something you can use that. And I remember when I was doing Afghanistan, I was trying to do propaganda to put the Russians in the back bad light, and you know it was frustrating. The greatest propaganda piece wasn't it was just a, a movie, but if you remember Rambo with Ty Stallone hanging out the window with his uh, with his AK-47 firing at these bad Russians, it did more to help shape how the world viewed things than than all of my uh, and dime propaganda. So um, I'm a much bigger fan of, of the movies, and I think people, American people, sense that you know there's a dramatization, but at the core they see it as a, an American with a sense of mission trying to carry it out. So I'm not as critical as I was earlier in my life uh, about that. And, uh, and the one exception is there's, there is this feeling that somehow CIA is more out off the reservation and more rogue than the reality. I mean, I had a lawyer at my elbow for my last 12 years at the agency of one form or another. So, um, but I'm not as critical. I think it, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's good public relations. Jack Devine, the book is Good Hunting, an American Spymaster Story, just out from Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. Jack, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, I enjoyed it. It was great talking to you. Thank a lot you. of interesting and different subjects. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.